We're in Numbers chapter 21 today. Numbers chapter 21. We are working our way through the book of Numbers. Um, because I googled how to increase attendance at church, and they said preach through Numbers. That always works, and so... Is how you grow your church overnight. You want a big church? Preach through numbers. And when you've done that, go, get, go to Leviticus. People will be beating the door down. So, I'm trying it out and seeing how it goes. So far, not so good. Alright, Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21. I'm going to read um, all 35 verses. And as I do, listen for a few things. Listen for... This new generation of people. They're going to be different than the old generation. The old generation that was sentenced to die in the wilderness. These guys are different. They're different. And they're going to have this, they're going to have some issues, but listen for them as they, as they show us what it looks like to confess sin. They're going to show us an Old Testament, um, version of believing the gospel. They're going to show us what it looks like to trust God and work really hard. We're gonna we're gonna see what it looks like to sing joyfully. So as I read through these verses, be on the lookout uh, for some of these for some of these things. Numbers chapter twenty one says, "When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negeb, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive." And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out up, or up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent. And set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And the people of Israel set out and camped in Oboth, and they set out from Oboth and camped in Abiram, in the wilderness that is opposite Moab, toward the sunrise. From there they set out and camped in the valley of Zered. From there they sent out and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites, for the Arnon is the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Wahab and Sufa and the valleys of Arnon and the slope of the valleys that extend the seat of Ar and leans to the border of Moab. And from there they continue to Beer, which is, that is the well where, of which the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together so that I may give them water. You would expect him to say, so I can give them beer, but no, that's not it. So anyhow, then Israel sang this song, spring up, O well, sing to it, the well that the princes made, that the nobles of the people dug with their scepter and with their staffs. 
And from the wilderness they went out to Matana, and from Matana to Nahiel, and from Nahiel to Bamoth, and from Bamoth to the valley lying in the region of Moab to the top of Pisgah that looks down on the desert. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. And Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok as far as uh, to the Ammonites, for the border of the Ammonites was strong. And Israel took all these cities and Israel settled in all these cities in all the cities of the Amorites and Heshbon and all its villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and taken all his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. Therefore the ballad singers say, Come to Heshbon, let it be built, let the cities of Sihon be established. For fire came from Heshbon, flame from the city of Sihon. It devoured Ar of Moab and swallowed the heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, O Moab! You are undone, O people of Chemosh. He has made his sons fugitives and his daughters captives to an Amorite king, Sihon. So we overthrew them. Heshbon, as far as Dibon, perished, and we laid waste as far as Nophah. Fire spread as far as Mediba. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites, and Moses sent to spy out Jazer, from the, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up by the way of, or by the way to Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, and he's absolutely going to be a bad guy. His name is Og, king of Bashan. Og, king of Bashan, came out against them, he and all his people, to battle Edri. But the, but the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand and all his people and his land, and you shall do to them as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they defeated him and his sons and all his people until he had no survivor left, and they possessed his land. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that's in this chapter. This is uh, four or five sermons worth of stuff in here, God. And, it's, um, and so we pray that you would give us good, alert minds, that you would help me to be clear, and that you would, you would cause your word um, to be sunk deep into our hearts, and that you would change us, and you would grow us. We thank you for um, the way you work through your word. It doesn't return to us empty. And we are relying on that this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. We've got a lot of work to do this morning. I, I was reading this and I was thinking about this new generation of, of Israelites and the older generation, the ones who got all the way to the promised land, but they, but they refused to go in. They didn't believe God. And they, he, he got them all the way there and they were just, they just had to cross the threshold and go in and take the land that he was giving them, but they refused. And so they were sentenced to death in the wilderness. They are now dying out and they're almost gone. And so now we have this new generation. And they have their issues, and we're going to see in the next few chapters, uh, they've got some stuff to work through before God brings them into the promised land as well. But this is the group that's going to make it. This is the group that's going to make it into the promised land. This is the better generation. When I was in high school, um, uh, I went to a small Christian school 
and I played basketball on the basketball team, um, ninth through 12th grade. We didn't have JV and varsity most years, and um, so it was just a varsity team most of the time. You just had to be able to like walk and 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 like uh, chew gum at the same time, and you could make the basketball team. It wasn't it wasn't you know, but we were we were actually very good um, for our level of Christian school, you know, our size of our school, especially my junior and senior year. We were pretty good. We were pretty successful. It was pretty fun, and it was actually just a really good time, my junior and senior year. Um, and uh, and it was much better than my freshman and sophomore year. My junior and senior year, we won a lot of games. We had three guys who could really play, and they were good kids, um, And they, but they could really play. And they had guys like me who could pass it to the guys who were really good. And so we were just like, we had a formula, and it was working for us. My 10th grade year, though, was different. My 10th grade year, the, uh, we, had a, we had a different coach, different head coach, and, and his son was a senior, and he was one of two kids um, who were not great, not great guys. They played almost every game. Um, they hardly ever came to practice. They were always in trouble at school. They didn't meet any of the standards that any basketball team should ever have for participation, um, they were just, they were just not good kids. Always in trouble. Terrible attitudes. Never came to practice, but they started and played every game. And the one kid's dad, the, the, the worst of them, the one, the one kid's dad was the head coach. So it was a fun year. Um, we were, uh, we were at an away game. Um, and, uh, it was halftime. And the assistant coach finally had enough. And he said, that kid should not be playing. He should not be playing. This is not right. So he's calling him out halftime. You know, we've got like 10 minutes to, to do strategy, and instead we're doing this. And so the kid, he's a big kid, sucker punches the assistant coach, just blasts him in the face. There's blood all over the locker room. There's blood all over our jerseys. We break a mirror trying to hold the assistant coach back because he would have put that kid in the hospital. Um, and then, you know, we went out and represented Jesus on the basketball court after that, I guess. I don't know. Uh, it was, you know, um, the, uh, yeah, the, the pregame devotional kind of felt a little flat after that. Um, it was a different generation. <laughs> uh, next year was better. Next year was better. We had a lot less of that. We had none of that, actually. We didn't break any visiting locker rooms and mirrors. We didn't get any blood on our jerseys. Um, it was fun. It was what basketball was supposed to be. New generation. Today, that's what we're looking at in chapter 21. We're looking at a new crew of people. And they're going to teach us some stuff. They're going to show us. We've we've learned through bad example the last few chapters. Now we're going to get a chance to learn through good examples. There are four ways where this generation in Numbers chapter 21, four ways where they are a good example to you and to me. How, How believers... Um, right now should live. There are four ways where these, where this crew is a good example to us. So let's, let's look at these four ways together. Number one, they teach us to confess our sin. Did you catch that in verse, uh, let's see, in verse six? When the people complain, they do that same complaining in verse four and five. That same complaining the previous generation did. They learned that same sin that their fathers and their mothers had committed. That was, I mean, they, they doing the same sin, but they do something very different here in verse seven. They say something the, the, the former generation never said. 
They said, we have sinned. This is the first time in the book of Numbers that the people own it. And they say, we have sinned. You'll notice something, and I've noticed it in my life. Sin isn't super creative. Like this, you're not tempted by a lot of sins that people a thousand years ago were tempted. The sin is pretty much the same. My, my dad, um, <laughs> uh, my, my dad is gonna be 80 in March. Um, and this, this story I'm about to tell you is still kicking around our family because my dad thinks it's funny. Um, and so he brings this up. No one else talks about this anymore, but my dad talks about it because he thinks, he to this day thinks it's funny. My, he was, uh, he was four years younger than his nearest sister. She was four years older than him. And, uh, and so he was like 13 or 14 years old when she met the guy she was going to marry. His name was Max. Um, his name was Max, but my dad thought it would be funny to call him Eugene Loverboy. And so every time Max came to the house, my dad decided it would be funny to call him Eugene Loverboy. He would have stopped after the first time because that's just stupid. He would have stopped, but my, my, but my aunt hated it. It ticked my, my aunt off, and she She's like, Kenny, stop saying it. And she'd freak out at him. And so, of course, he'd say it again. Um, this is like who I am. The, 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 that is the sins of my youth, right? The, the moment I realize something that I think is funny is, is awful to someone else, I just want to say it more. I just want to do it more. Oh, you hate that? Well, here I go. It bothers you? Nice. I'm glad I've located that in you. Prepare to hear this for the rest of your life. And I have children who have adopted that policy. And so we just have a lot of fun in my house. Sin isn't new. That's not new. I didn't create that. My children didn't create it. My dad didn't create it. He probably got it from somebody before him. Sin just... We're sinning in the same way as we sinned a thousand years ago. Sin isn't new. And we say, oh, we say, I'll never be like my dad. I'll never be like my mom. Oh, well, you are. <laughs> you are. You're going to struggle against the same temptations they struggled against. But here's what's new and encouraging in this passage. Not that they sin in the same way as their forefathers sinned, but that they do something their forefathers never did, and they say, we're sorry. I've sinned. I'm Sorry. This is, this is what's new. The uh, Scripture tells you, I mean, I, I, I promise you that this is true, but it doesn't really matter that I promise you that it's true. Scripture teaches us that there is, that there is real blessing, real joy, real renewal on the other side of saying, I'm sorry. Saying it to God saying it to the people that we have sinned against, it is, like turning, uh, it is like turning the handle on a faucet. You go up and you stand next to that kitchen sink and you stand there and you look at that sink and you wait for refreshing water to come. You can stand there and look at the sink and wait for refreshing water to come um, until you're blue in the face. Unless you turn the handle, the refreshing water is not coming. This is, a way, this is the way confession works in our life. Just to say, I, I'm sorry. Not, I'm sorry if I offended you. I'm sorry that you're so touchy. I'm sorry if you misinterpreted what I... No, I'm sorry. I sinned against you and I'm sorry. This is what I did. It was wrong and I'm sorry. 
there is, these, these, these people are reminding us this is the way forward in, in the Christian life. Now, they also are going to hear remind us, though, that you, you, if you're, you're, you're going to find forgiveness, you have to start with finding forgiveness from God. And that brings us to point number two. You have to find forgiveness the way God has laid it out. You have to find forgiveness correctly. So that brings us to, to point number two. These people teach us to believe the Gospel. They, they teach us to confess our sins and they also teach us to believe the Gospel. Verse 8 and 9 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is, a, this is just one of those bizarre stories in the Old Testament. I just would have loved to be there, not, not getting bitten by snakes, but I would have loved to be there and just see this. This snake that Moses puts up on this pole, and every time someone's bit by one of these vipers, these poisonous vipers, they, they, they turn to the pole, the, the bronze serpent on the pole, and then they're healed. This is nuts! I love it. And this is, and again, this is worth like three, four, five sermons all by itself. But what we, I just want to, I want to draw a couple of uh, things to your attention. One, we got to see here that God uses a symbol of judgment to save his people. The snakes were what was bringing the judgment. They were the ones that God was using to punish his people. And so in this really weird twist, God says, okay, put this snake, this, this picture of judgment, high and lift it up. Put it up here on this pole so people look and see their judgment lifted up. The judgment they deserve. The judgment that's coming to them for their foolish sin. They have to look at it. The first thing we have to see is God uses a symbol of judgment to save His people. And the second thing, and there's a, there's a bunch of stuff we could say, but here's the only other thing I want to say. All they have to do is look. They just have to look. They just have to believe enough to look at the, at the bronze snake. To, to say, this is the only way I'm going to be forgiven and healed. The only way I can be forgiven and healed is to look at this, this, this thing that God has set up. God's way is the only way. This is, this is all a gift of God. This is my only hope. This is what Jesus was trying to teach Nicodemus in their midnight chat. In John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and, and Jesus says to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, the Son of Man, Me, Jesus says, I, I am the Son of Man. I will be lifted up on the cross. I'm going to be lifted up on this, this high symbol of punishment. This high symbol of judgment. You're going to see Me hanging from a cursed tree. You're going to see Me as a symbol of judgment. Me taking all the judgment for the sin that you deserve. It won't be you up there, Nicodemus, dying for your own sins. You're going to look at this cruel cross, this cruel symbol of judgment. And you're going to see me hanging there. And anyone who believes will have eternal life. Whoever, whoever turns to me for forgiveness, Jesus says, will have eternal life. 
Whoever by God's grace looks. Whoever by God's grace believes. Whoever by God's grace understands that they can bring nothing to the table except for the understanding that they bring nothing to the table. Whoever believes that Jesus alone is the only way to be saved from their sin will have eternal life. I have to stop and ask you right now, have you believed? Have you turned to Jesus? Have you turned to Jesus as your only way to be forgiven of your sins and to have eternal life with God? To escape the judgment you deserve in hell? He was lifted up on that that symbol of judgment so that all who believe will be saved. So this is the Christian life. Christian life starts there, but then it continues on remembering that Jesus was lifted up in judgment for us. This is what we do. This is why we gather every Sunday. We look back to the cross and we remember Jesus Christ was lifted up in judgment on the cursed tree, the tree that we deserve so that we can have eternal life. This is how we, this is how we have joy in our day-to-day lives, but it's also how we have courage to confess our sin. To own up when we've sinned against God. To own up when we've sinned against each other. Knowing of the full and free forgiveness we have in Jesus. This is what, this is what gives us courage to confess our sin. So those are the first couple of ways that these people are a good, are a, are a good example to us. Here's the third one. The third one is, they teach us to trust God and work hard. They teach us to trust God and work hard. There are, there are times we're tempted to do just one or the other. This chapter reminds us that it's, it's both. For one thing, this chapter reminds us that, they, that the only way these people have any success whatsoever is if God gives it. The, the beginning of the chapter with, king, with the king of Arad... They, they said, God, if you, will, if you will give us victory, we will devote these cities to destruction as you have called us to. You have told us, God, to, to devote the Canaanite cities to destruction, to wipe out the Canaanites. This is, this is God's judgment on the Canaanites. This is like uh, the flood in the day of Noah or, the, or Sodom and Gomorrah. This is, this is God judging the Canaanites. And, and, and the people say, God, if you will give us this. This is not them bargaining with God. This is them relying on God. This is them saying, God, you're the only way this is going to work. We cannot, we cannot have success without you. This is them expressing confidence that God alone gives the victory over the people of Arad. And then, this is how the chapter ends as well. Verse 34, but the, but the Lord said to Moses, do not fear him, talking about Og, uh, good old Og. Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand and all his people and his land. So, so God has given Og into their hand. But that doesn't mean that they're just going to kind of hang out and wait for Og to like fall down or hand over his land. That's not the, that's not the way that the people, people handle this. It's not the way they respond to this. God says, you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they defeated him and his sons and all his people until he had no survivor left and they possessed his land. They got to work. The same thing, the same thing in verse 16. 
when it's time for, for them to have water. They, they continued to beer. That is the well of which the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together so that I may give them water. But they didn't just stand there waiting for water to come bubbling up. They dug. Even the princes, they dug with their scepters, it says. Everybody dug. This is the, this is the Christian life. This is the Christian life. It's hard work. These people, are, these people are setting up camp. They're tearing it down. They're traveling. They're digging for water. They're, they're writing songs. They're going to war. They're sending messages. They're working. They're all working. This is blood and sweat and tears. This is what the Christian life is. The question this morning is, does God give victory? Or do I work for it? And the answer is yes. Both. You will not defeat sin in your life if God doesn't give you victory. But you won't defeat sin in your life if you're just sitting around waiting for it to happen either. Paul in Philippians 2 says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So Scripture is super clear. Anything good only comes if God gives it according to His own good pleasure. I don't even want to. Do, I don't even want victory over sin unless God gives me a new heart, unless God gives me the desire to fight sin, and I'll never have victory over sin unless I have the strength come from God alone. My salvation story from the beginning of the, the creation, before the beginning of the creation of the universe, to when I stand complete before Him is, is all of God. Anything good, any kind of fruit, whatsoever, is all of God. But here's what we have to understand. If, if we're going to grow in holiness, if I'm going to be used of God to make disciples, if I'm going to defeat sin in my life, if I'm going to love my neighbor, if I'm going to lead my family well, I'm going to have to work really hard. I say this a lot. If, if I go to bed at night and I'm not exhausted, it means I'm probably not doing it right. I probably didn't pour into my family, into my ministry, the way I should have. If I'm not spent emotionally and physically, if I'm not ready just to sleep, I'm probably not doing it right. Fighting against sin and, and, and making disciples and raising a family and shepherding a church, it's hard work. It's only possible if God does the work. But it's also something we must work hard, fight hard. It's our blood, sweat, and tears. Is there a mystery there? How all that works together? There absolutely is, but we don't have to figure it out. We don't have to sort out all of that. We just have to know that, that all of the credit goes to God alone for everything. And at the end of the day, we're going to be exhausted because following Jesus is hard work. If we're going to walk worthy of the Gospel. 
We're going to, what does 2 Peter says? Make every effort. 2 Peter says, make every effort. Not to get saved, but because you are saved. You make every effort to be a holy disciple maker. So that's the third way that these, these guys are a great example to us. And then number four, this is the last one. They teach us to sing joyfully. They teach us to sing joyfully. Uh, there's been a few firsts in this chapter, right? There's been, I mean, this is the first time they've had any victory whatsoever in the wilderness. This is, you know, they haven't had a lot of victory. They haven't had any victory in the book of Numbers. And they haven't confessed their sin. And this is the first time they've sung. They, they sing three different times in this chapter. They sing a geography song in verses 14 and 15. My children sing geography songs because um, they're trying to remember their states and their capitals and the countries of Eastern Europe and stuff like that. They, that's why they sing geography songs. These people are singing geography songs because they're remembering together all of the different places God has brought them. God has brought us safely through all of this different land, all of these different spots, all of these different enemy territories. God is bringing us all the way through. God is bringing us to the promised land. So they're singing this, this geography song. They're just lit, rattling off names of places. It's, it's joyful singing. They sing a digging song. They sing a digging song. They're singing as they work. In verse 17 and 18, they're, they're singing as they work. They, and then and in verse 27 through 30, they sing a war song. They sing this song remembering how God had given them victory over their enemies and how He was going to do it again. They're singing. This is what people who are, who are confident that con- they're confident that God is the only one who's going to give victory. They're confident in God alone. But they're also determined to, to work Hard because that's what God has called them to do. God has called them to show their faith by working really hard. But uh, see, see, a, a person who, um, a person who's confident that that God is going to give the victory, but they're not out there working hard, they have no reason to sing. There's nothing to sing about. They're just kind of waiting around for something good to happen. You can't sing while you're watching Netflix 14 hours a day. No time for singing. You gotta, you gotta hit the button to watch another show. But if you're confident that God, and, and the people who are working, thinking that, working, thinking that if they don't get it done, it'll never get done, the people who are trusting in themselves to bring about, um, results, saying my, the, the, the people who are, who are saying success only happens if I make it happen, those people aren't singing either because they're stressed out. Right? They're stressed out. But you got both. You got people who are who are working their tail off. That's Christian for butt. They, they um, Baptist. It's Baptist for anyhow. I'm done with that. Um, you got you got people working their tail off, confident that God is going to bring success, overjoyed because God is the God is the only one who's brought them this far. God's the only one who could who could even make them care about this. You got both those things working together. You got people who are singing. You have real joy there. You have real joy. You have joy that comes from the heart that expresses itself in song. I, I want to encourage you 
moms and dads and grandparents, I encourage you to fill your home with, with songs that celebrate the glory of God and the grace of God and the truth of Scripture. Let your children hear you sing. You might be like me. I'm a, I'm a bad singer. I am not a good singer. It is not, it is not good. But I will, I will swallow my pride, at least in that way, and, and I will sing because I want my children to see that I... Because singing is, singing is one of those weird things. This is a weird thing we do on Sunday mornings where we gather together and everybody sings together. Have you thought about that's just weird? That's just odd. Why do we do that? And why are we singing these songs from 1,400 years ago? What is going on here? When we, when we sing the songs from hundreds of years ago, and we sing the songs that are written today that, that thousands of other people are singing this morning as well across the world, we are, we are expressing our joy and our confidence in the, in the glory and the grace and the truth of God. I'm going to... I'm, I'm done. I'm done. Um... Somebody clapped, and that's inappropriate. Um, I don't care how old you are. Inappropriate. Especially if it was one of my offspring. Doubly inappropriate. I'm going to tell you something, uh, moms and dads and grandparents. Your children are going to go through hard times. If they're under the age of 21, they don't believe they're going to. They don't believe that they're going to go through hard times. They don't. We, we, I, we just feel invincible when we're young. We see people suffer, but we're like, man, that stinks. Glad that's never going to happen to me. We see people go through divorce. Glad that'll never happen to me. We see kids just break their parents' heart. Ah, glad that'll never happen to me. Woo! That's how young people think. Stupid young people. <laughs> uh, there's this song I was talking about in Sunday school. There's this song. And so... Um, I said I was done, and now I'm going to prattle on for a second. Um, there's this song um, on the radio. I don't know if it's still on the radio. I think it is. It's called We Ain't Ever Getting Older. And it's really, really catchy. It's just this song. It goes really fast, and it's really catchy. And, and, and if you think about it, it's really stupid. But it, it's, it's a pop song, so you don't have to think about it. You can just kind of listen. Oh, it rhymes, and it goes fast. So I'll listen. Yeah, I'll sing it. Yeah. So... But it's about how you're never going to get older. It's this person who's singing it is probably 18 or 20, and they're invincible because every 18-year-old is invincible. And I was listening to it one time. I was talking about this in Sunday school today, and I, I was listening to it one time, and it, the song got over. We, you know, we, we're never getting older. song got over, and there was a life insurance commercial come on right after it. <laughs> I was like, that's awesome. Oh, America. I love it. I love it. That's awesome. That's perfect. Here's what's going to happen with your children and your grandchildren. Here's why I want you to gather with your children at church and have them hear you sing. This is why I, this is why I want them to have these songs that we sing at First Baptist Church. I want them in their heart. Because life is, going to, life is going to come at your kids hard. They're going to go through it. They're going to go through heartbreak. They're going to go through trials. They're going to go through where the waters are just over their head. Or they're, they're right there at their chin. They're right there at their chin. They just absolutely are. What we want coming from their heart in those times 
by the songs of God's glory and God's grace, the truth of God's word, the fact that God always keeps his promises, the fact that we can always, we can always rest in him, the fact that he always has a good plan. These, that's the songs we want. Because that song, we ain't never getting older, that ain't helping nobody. That ain't helping nobody. But, but in Christ alone, the, the, way, the waves start going over your head, you can stand on that song. You can stand on that song, come what may. So let's sing. Let's sing. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to actually do that. Let's, let's pray. I'm done. God, we thank you for your word. And this passage, again, I felt it as I was going through it, God. It's, just, it's probably bigger than just one or two sermons. But I thank you for your grace, and I thank you for people who are just gathered to hear what your word has to say and to think about it. I, th- I thank you for that. I thank you for that, that um, just reality in First Baptist Church, that your people you have gathered here love your word. It's, just a, it's such a source, source of encouragement for me. I thank you for it. And so I pray, God, that you would, you would do what we are expecting you to do, that you, will, that you will continue to work in us through your word, that you would help us to believe I pray, God, that you would help us to know for sure that if anything good comes, it is only and all because of you, all because of your grace. It's all of grace. And then help us to understand that the way we express that belief is by working hard to serve you, to bring you glory, to fight against our sin, to make disciples. Help us to sing while we do this. Help us be quick to confess our sin. Help us to build our lives on the truth of the gospel that your son was lifted up in judgment so we can have eternal life. Help us, God, in Christ's name. Amen.